0: morning, Covenant family. Good to see all of you here today. My name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors. If this happens to be your first time with us, welcome those of you who are gathering at home also. And if you have a few moments, just take out your phone and share this um, service together. Uh, I have a feeling there's going to be a great need. Uh, today's not a lightweight day. Some heavy stuff we've got to talk about today. But I, I hope and I pray that the result of not only today's message, But what comes throughout the next four weeks is going to be liberating for a lot of folks. And so we're in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, One of our faithful deacons, Ellen, just read that passage for us at the outset of our time together. And we're going to be talking about a subject called deep wounds and looking at the issue of leadership today. And how, how is it that leadership sometimes inflict those wounds? How can you be the kind of leader that no longer does that sort of thing? And what do you do when you're in a, an abusive environment? And all of that, of course, is within this wider context of being wounded deeply. There's, there's no Bible verse that actually says this explicitly, but we see evidence of it in every narrative in Scripture, and it is nonetheless true that wherever two or more are gathered, eventually everybody gets hurt. Have you experienced that? It's the nature of relationships between human beings. Sometimes it's not because there's an evil person in the midst. Now, sometimes there is, but most of the time it's just because we are fallen creatures, which means that there has never been and there never will be in your life a significant relationship that doesn't come without some level of pain. Wherever there's love, there's going to be pain and the reason for that is because even when you have two or more people who love each other those people are sinners and they are going to sin against each other. Uh, I don't do as many weddings as I used to do. I got a lot of we've got a lot of pastors on the staff here who frankly do it better than I do Uh, and I tend to be a little bit blunt at weddings. I have the bride and the groom here they're all dressed and the groom showered for the first time in a week perhaps and you know, they're all sitting there, and I'm, I'm like, you know, we've gone through all of the premarital counseling. Everything here is set up for a win. There's only really two variables that really concern me. One is this man, and the other is this woman. And, and the reason for that is because those are two sinners coming into a relationship together. I can guarantee you, on the basis of experience, they are going to sin against each other. But sometimes, even in your closest relationships... The wounds that get inflicted are deep. And sometimes you don't know exactly how to get past it. Sometimes crises, I don't know, we've been through any crises in the last year or so? Can you think of anything? Drive us to a place emotionally and otherwise where we might say things we wouldn't otherwise say. We might type things we wouldn't otherwise type. And sometimes that can result in long-term friendships, relationships seemingly breaking apart over nothing. And you may be one of those people sitting here this morning going, how in the world did that happen? And how do I get past this? And so we're gonna spend the next four weeks looking at that. What what does God's word say about this subject of deep wounds? How do I forgive? Is there a path toward reconciliation? We're gonna ask questions like, am I making too much of this? Because for some of you, the answer is yes, you're making too much of it. And you just need to put your big boy pants on, right? But there are other times when, when the wounds are legitimate and they're deep, and we're going to talk about some of the causes of that hurt, especially hurt that occurs within the body of Christ. We're going to talk about things that, that lead up to that hurt, like gossip and control issues and division and judgmentalism. And what, what does the scriptures tell us is required for reconciliation? But today we've got to start with the heaviest of them all, abuse. Abuse that occurs specifically at the hands of a leader. Maybe you've been in an environment where someone whose job it was to minister to you, to lead you, and what they actually did was they hurt you. They wounded you deeply within the church. You have been the victim of abuse at the hands of someone who did what I I do for a living. Or some other spiritual leader. It may even be hard for you to listen to a guy like me, not because I'm the one who did it to you, but because I'm holding an office that was represented when that abuse took place. And you find it almost impossible to get over. How do you get through this? How do you get past this? How do you find healing? Now, now when we talk about abuse, we want to define it accurately. Okay? Any of you ever have a child who thought they were being abused? Right. And you said, "If you want abuse, um, yeah, well, I'll let the police come and talk to you. Or I'll, I'll let you. We, we, there are abusive environments, kid. this ain't one of them, right? So, so let's, let's out of respect for the term, out of respect for legitimate causes of abuse and legitimate victims, let's start by defining what abuse is not. Number one, abuse is not a leader making a decision that you don't like. All right. Some of you need to go to work tomorrow morning and apologize to your boss because you've been thinking yourself a victim when in reality that's just the nature of the employer-employee relationship. It, it, yes, it inconvenienced you. Yes, it, it caused more your workload. Yes, it may, it may have increased some of your frustrations. That was not abuse. That's why you get paid. It's the nature of the employer-employee relationship. A leader making a decision that you don't like is not in and of itself abuse. Number two, abuse is not correcting something in you that needs correction. Uh, First church I ever pastored, there was a deacon there, his name was John, and uh, we made a hospital visit together on a Monday. I won't forget it because the Sunday before, I had preached on gossip and how horribly damaging it is to the church. It's coming in a couple of weeks, so you guys will get the privilege of hearing that too. Similar kind of message. And on the way to the hospital, he just, and I could feel like legitimate, like pain. He said, Pastor, that sermon was highly offensive to me. And I said, well, John, it's. I, I promise you, it is not my aim when I get up to see how much hurt and pain I can inflict on John. I, I, I wasn't even thinking about you. Tell me about this. Well, it's just for you, when you talk about gossip being satanic, I almost felt like you were telling me I was demon possessed. I was just deeply hurt by that. And I finally said, I said, Well, John, if you're not guilty of gossip, I don't know why you would take offense. Is this something that you do? And he said, Well, Pastor, yeah, you know, well, you know, I'm the mayor in town, and that's just kind of the nature of politics. It's just what we do, and this is how it is. And in church, sometimes I've done it. I said, Oh, okay, all right. John, I got great news for you. Repent and stop doing that crap, and then my sermons won't hurt anymore, (laughs) right? Sometimes when you're pressing into somebody, you're doing it for their good, right? That's not abuse. That's a pastor doing his job. Number three, and this applies to all of your brothers and sisters, abuse is not speaking the truth in love. When your spouse, now I'm getting personal, aren't I? Looks at you and says, I love you. That wasn't right. When, when my wife looks at me on occasion and says, "You should go apologize to your son. You were too hard on him." All right, no, no, that's not that, that's, a, that's a, a an effort to reunite something that's been broken, maybe even unknowingly, by somebody that you love. All right, so so what is abuse? All right, because if everything you don't like is abuse then the word loses its meaning. And can we be honest? There's just way too much legitimate abuse in the world. There are way too many legitimate victims who need help for us to allow that to happen. So let's define this term. And I'm going to use the definition given by an organization called GRACE. It's an acronym for Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment. Now, this is our partner organization. They resource us with all kinds of training. In fact, go ahead and mark your calendars for... Two weeks from today at 1 p.m., there's a training if you haven't already gotten signed up for it. You can go to the church app and do that, and it's on domestic violence. How do you identify it, spot it? How do you escape it? How should the church be addressing it and dealing with it, all right? That's just one of many tools that this organization gives us. Uh, The other side of this organization is that they are our objective uh, tool of accountability. So God forbid something happens on this campus. Joel's not in charge anymore. Grace is in charge. They come in. They do objective, forensic. These are former prosecutors, people who just simply want the truth. We do that because we believe all of us, including your elders, are accountable in this kind of environment. And this is how they define emotional or spiritual abuse. They say it is a pattern so this isn't just one time or a couple times where somebody's got to apologize and, and make things right. This is a repeated, unrepentant pattern whereby a person in a position of authority or trust uses that position to domineer and to control others. All right, so think about this. Dads, think about this in your homes. All right, bosses, think about this in a relationship to your employees. It's one thing to hold people accountable. It's one thing to lead well and sometimes tick people off. But it's another thing to have a pattern of leadership that is characterized by things like shaming, dismissing, bullying, threatening, degrading, which can include things like name calling, uh, constant tones of contempt or sarcasm, humiliation. I'm not pointing out something to correct it in you. I'm doing it because I don't like you and I just wanna run you down. Dismissal of agency. I'm starting now to direct very personal areas of your life. Uh, and passively, it comes out this way. When, when abusers are confronted with this sort of thing, they deny, they minimize. I don't see what the big deal is. They justify, well, here's why it had to be done. Or, you may have experienced this, they blame shift. Well, I wouldn't have done any of that if the victim hadn't otherwise known in political circles as whataboutism. That's another subject for another day. But that's what abusers do. This is how they behave. And and, and when that comes into the body of Christ, it often in a very sick way gets covered over with religious ideology, Bible verses, weaponized, other kinds of spiritual justification. In the sickest situation, this emotional, spiritual abuse begins to graduate to something far worse, physical, sexual abuse of adults, children. We've seen this in spades in way too many churches. Cross-denominationally, Catholic, Protestant, mainline, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran. There's no particular brand of theology that by itself solves this problem, and we've seen that over the last several years with the, with the rise of, of the church Two movement. What we're going to learn today from Matthew 23 is that this has been a problem for 2,000 years. So just like we face it today, the first century Jewish community faced it as well. And here's here's what we're going to learn from Jesus. Spiritual authority is legitimate, okay? But when when leaders abuse their authority, when they use it for self-fulfilling purposes, they can leave some pretty deep wounds that are difficult to heal from. And so here's our question today. How do you differentiate between a spiritual leader using his or her authority for good and someone who abuses that authority. Jesus answers nearly every question we might have on that subject in Matthew chapter 23. And he does it by addressing a group of people called the Pharisees. I probably should say at the outset, my Jewish friends would appreciate this, that the Pharisees were not by default bad guys. We tend to see them that way in evangelical circles That's not really who they were. They actually began as a sect of Judaism with a very healthy interest in preserving Torah. They believed like your pastor does, like all of you should, that the Bible is, and in that case it was the Old Testament, is the written word of God, and therefore it should be guarded, it should be preserved, it should be defended, it should be taught, it should be observed, it should be obeyed. But what happened is over about that 400-year period, especially between our Testaments, number of folks within this sect had become controlling and oppressive. So the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, in large numbers, were no longer shielding Torah from attack. They had weaponized Torah as a means of controlling their followers. And that still happens today. The most obvious examples are, are cult groups from the Branch Davidians to the Jehovah's Witnesses to the Church of Scientology. But even within orthodox environments, Remember, these these were the conservatives, these were the textualists, these were the people who who were trusted with positions of great influence. Even an otherwise orthodox confession of faith is necessary, but by itself it will not protect you or me from these kinds of people or from this kind of environment. Because people trusted with positions of great influence have used this to serve themselves, to control others, to oppress followers rather than grow disciples. And here in Jesus' on confrontation with the Pharisees, we're going to learn how to recognize abusive people, abusive environments. And then we're going to learn, what do do you do about that? Today's tough, like I said. And I I just want to warn you, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit today. Not so much here, because I don't have a long history here just yet. I've been here about five and a half years Um, although we certainly are not exempt as a church. We've had our share of this sort of thing that we've had to contend with. But within the the wider evangelical world, stories that you've heard, and there are multiple things that that media just doesn't cover. I'm going to pull that curtain back and share some stories with you today, some examples as a way for you to recognize some of these things for what they are. Jesus gives us a number of principles here. Here's the first one. If you want to confront this, you got to stay with the message rather than the messenger. Stay with the message rather than the messenger. Verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do whatever and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Do what they tell you. Jesus shares their view of scripture. Do you see this? They're not a cult. I'm not telling you not to believe what they tell you. I agree with them on the nature of God. I agree with them on holiness. I agree with them on Torah. What they're telling you furthermore, they're telling you from Moses' seat. Archaeologists have actually dug up in recent years actual chairs in some of those early synagogues. That they believe is what Jesus was referring to. And that chair, kind of like this pulpit, was a symbol of authority. When you sit there, you were presumed to carry the authority of Moses. And Jesus himself affirms that about these men. He says, when they sit in these seats, they carry that. These men teach rightly. That's what he's saying. That's actually a pretty high compliment. Uh, One of the greatest compliments you could pay me about my teaching, is if you tell your neighbor or your friend, hey, Pastor Joel preaches the book. Pastor Joel sticks with the Bible. Pastor Joel preaches the same thing. He teaches the same things that Jesus taught. He teaches the same things that Paul taught. And if you say those things about me, you're effectively saying the same thing that Jesus said about these men. Their teaching carries authority, not because of who they are, but because what they taught was concurrent with what Moses would have taught. But the way they're living, that's different. Totally out of sync with what they're teaching. You ever witnessed that? We've witnessed a lot of that, haven't we, over the last several years. The cover's been blown off of a lot of pastors and spiritual leaders and influencers who've actually turned out to be abusive and demeaning behind the scenes. You know, like the public never saw any of this. So when the cover gets blown off, you're like, I never even knew that side of that person existed And sometimes in the worst cases, there's been physical abuse, sexual assault. Media covered that to the great shame of the name of Jesus. And you may wonder, like I did, after a few of those names that were very influential even in my own life, and I would sit there with my mouth open and really kind of in an unbelievable way looking at this and just kind of feeling hollowed out as a minister of the gospel, where did that reprehensible behavior come from? Because you'd think you would have seen it, right? You'd you think like... It, it, because these are people who moved and changed the lives of a lot of people with their sermons and their books and their, and their seminars. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you based on Jesus' words here. Most likely that started when the people that were closest to them could not separate the message from the messenger. Failed to understand... What Adrian Rogers used to say of himself, there's a lot of men that can preach the gospel better than me, but nobody can preach a better gospel. That the star of the show is not the personality presenting the word, but the word itself. And if Joel gets hit by a bus tomorrow, the word of God will stand forever. You don't need Joel. Understanding that, right? The message, the messenger. They need to be in sync, right? And if you want the right guy up here, or among our elders, or among our deacons. You need somebody whose life is in sync with that, but, but when you have someone who's abusive, there's been a separation. And you've got to remember the words of Jesus. It is possible to teach otherwise trustworthy things and not be a trustworthy person. And if you've ever been the victim of a leader like this, y- your understandable temptation right now is to throw Jesus out with the one who falsely claimed to follow him. And what I want to do is just encourage you to hear Jesus' own words and consider what he's saying about that abusive leader who harmed you. Listen, they taught you about me, but they did not follow me. You, on the other hand, can follow me, and you can do it without being like them, without allowing them to hold you captive. So you've got to separate the message from the messenger. Secondly, you need to recognize the behavior of an abusive leader. Jesus goes on with a big laundry list of major indicators beginning in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fingers long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So there's there's three major surface indicators here of an abusive leader. Number one, they burden others to lighten themselves. That's that's verse four. They tie up heavy burdens, all right? The grunt works always got to get done by somebody else. This is why, for example, when we look at a potential leader here at Covenant, particularly an elder or a deacon, we look at people who are actively serving. Somebody who comes in late and leaves early during the worship service, isn't really bought in, doesn't really serve, never really does anything, but comes up to me and goes, I think God might be calling me to be a pastor. I'm like, yeah, I don't think he is. I don't. A deacon. You know the number of men and women that are in the deacon office right now that when we first approached them said, well, I I don't know if I qualify. You know what our response was? We've been watching you. You do. And we're offering you the title because you're already doing the work. We do that because we want to make sure that we've got people that are willing to share the load. It's why we ask potential pastoral staff before we hire them here about their giving habits. And it's why those habits get monitored. Not by me. I don't know who gives what. And I don't ever want to know. But, the, but I've given directives to people below me. You keep up with that. Now, why is that? Are we trying to get personal? Are we trying, no. It's because it is the height of hypocrisy to be in a position of that notoriety and to ask God's people financially to support something that you are not sacrificially supporting walk your talk. That's why I reiterate to our staff, especially our full-time and most especially our pastors, if you want a nine-to-five job, go work for a bank. And I don't mean that in an ugly way. I just mean this is ministry. This is what this is. We're not going to ask God's people for time that we personally are not willing to already give to growing the body of Christ. But but if you've got an abusive leader, all the grunt work goes somewhere else because they're the ones that benefit from that. Abusive leaders don't work for the benefit of the church. They use the hard labor of God's people for their own benefit. Secondly, they use the name of Jesus to make a name for themselves. That's where you get this strange word in verse 5, phylacteries. These are cube basically what they were in the ancient world. They were cube-shaped pieces of leather that contained... Scripture fragments and passages. And they were worn on the left arm or the forehead. And what it was intended to be was a reminder of God's law. But these leaders used them for show. Look at how holy I am. Look at how holy I am. Look at all, these, look at all this stuff. It would be like me walking up here with a great big Bible. you know. And Saturday night before, I roughed it up a little bit so it would look like I read it a little bit more. And that, that's what it was. it was. It was all for show. The best seats, banquet seating in those days like today was assigned to people based on rank or status. Abusive leaders are not in the ministry for the cross. They are in it for their own brand. And the evidence for this is that they expect to be the beneficiaries of their position. And then finally, abusive leaders care more about being called honorable than they do about actually being honorable. By the way, this translates to work, translates to our body politic, it translates, you hear the word leader in any context. It is essential that these are the standards in the church. But even outside the church, the world would be a whole lot better if we'd look for this stuff, don't you think? That's verse seven greetings in the marketplaces and and being called a rabbi. That's what I love the title. Call me Rabbi, call me Reverend, call me Doctor, call me pastor, call me. And abusive leaders are obsessively concerned with that, with their reputation, their public image. Their character, not so much. Most of you have probably heard about this shocking revelations that came out about Ravi Zacharias after his death. My friend Russ Moore, a couple of years before those revelations came out, had gotten wind of some accusations. And Ravi was slated to be a guest at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's MLK50 conference commemorating the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And so Russ did the thing that any man of God ought to do. He he picked up the phone. He called Ravi directly. He said, look, I'm not making any accusations, but this is serious. These women are saying about you. I, I need to hear from you. And Ravi said very simply, very succinctly, those allegations are false. And Russ, being a wise enough man to recognize, him, is just too generalized. It's just not, it's that, kind of vague. And so rather than accepting him at face value, he pressed in a little further. He said, Ravi, which allegations are false? Are some of them true? Are some of them partially true? Ravi begins to get frustrated. And so my friend finally says, well, Ravi, look, I love you, you're a brother. He'd been a faithful teacher of God's Word for years and years. These allegations are way too serious, and you're not answering some very basic, simple yes-or-no questions that a man not guilty of this really ought to be able to directly answer. So I'm afraid until you're prepared to do that, I'm going to have to rescind the invitation. And in response to that, you know what Ravi did? He did what every abuser I have ever seen who is guilty does. He responded by getting very, very angry. Because for maybe the first time in his life, he was confronted with real accountability. You say, that's Ravi. I don't care if it's Billy Graham. There's only one name we're worried about here, folks, and that's Jesus. That's the only name we're worried about preserving. Joel Rainey's going to be worm dirt inside of the next 40 years. My name means nothing. We need more of what uh, of what the Moravians used to teach each other, preach the gospel and then die and then be forgotten. And then there'd be a little bit less of this, you know, worried about my name and my reputation and what's going to happen to me is one name and only one name. But that's what happens behind the scenes. Ravi went on to goad some of the high-profile pastors in our network to call my friend up and, Pressure him heavily to reverse his decision. Here's my point. Men who are not guilty don't avoid simple questions of accountability, especially in a private phone call. They don't do it. But these are the behaviors of someone who abuses their power. They want authority, but not the responsibility commensurate with authority. And when those are the kinds of things that, that characterize a person's life, I'm not talking about making, them, listen, every leader, especially in the environment we've all been made to suffer through the last year, everybody loses their temper. Everybody is imperfect. Everybody makes mistakes. I'm talking about people whose entire course of life seems shady. These will be the characteristics which is why positively you need to examine that leader's closeness to Jesus himself. Verse 8 You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. You have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now, this is not a prohibition against spiritual titles or spiritual authority. The Bible, for example, has much to say about the authority of fathers in the home. So kids, I'm sorry, all right? You don't get to use this to tell dad today. You don't get to tell me what to do. He does get to tell you what to do. Spiritual authority is legitimate. It's not wrong. Hebrews 13 says the general posture of the church toward her leaders should be one of, of submission and obedience. The offices of pastor and deacon, those are identifiable leadership roles. They're necessary for a church to exist, but spiritual authority anchored to the wrong thing is deadly. And so Jesus reminds us here, there's one source for this and every other preacher in the world, spiritual authority. All legitimate spiritual authority is tied inextricably to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. My teaching is only authoritative when it syncs up with his. And all of this because he is only, there is only one God, there's only one who rose from the dead, and an abusive leader will either not recognize this or they will minimize it. They will use the name of Jesus, but do so as a cover for their own sin. One of the ugliest, most demonic actions a spiritual leader can take is to spiritualize their abuse of another. And not only are leaders who do this unqualified, they likely don't even have a genuine saving relationship with Jesus. How closely is a leader really following? How are they really closely connected? I know in a church this large, not everybody can see in Joel's bedroom at night. Not everybody gets a picture into Joel's quiet time with the Lord. Not everybody understands that, and knows that. All the more important to have biblically qualified elders around Joel. Amen. All the more important to have men and women serving as deacons in this role who who are close to each other in ways that allow us to call that kind of behavior incidentally out of each other so that it doesn't become a pattern in someone else's life. How closely are they really connected to the Savior that they're supposed to be helping you follow? And then the final thing is this. You want to examine a leader's motive. Look at verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted there are people who get into the ministry well some people get into the ministry because they go oh indoor work doesn't require heavy lifting looks like a job for me Uh, they don't last long here i can assure you of that Um, there are others who get into it for recognition for influence for power for privilege for pleasure, if that's the motivation, then those people are not qualified for leadership in the church because legitimate spiritual leaders use their title and their authority for the benefit of the body. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the the big challenge of, of, of the apostle Peter. To his fellow elders in the first century, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. There are three words used interchangeably here to describe the pastoral office. Uh, the first one, uh, it's coming up about any minute now, is, um, is presbyteros. Yeah, I couldn't remember if it was presbyteros or episcopal. Well, why I had to wait on the slide. Presbyteros means elder, that's referring to spiritual maturity. Now that doesn't mean if you're 60 that you're necessarily qualified, or that if you're 30 that you're unqualified. This is a spiritual thing, right? Now, someone who's been walking with Jesus for 30 years is obviously more spiritually mature than someone who's been walking with Jesus for only a couple of years. But age doesn't always, especially in our culture, correlate to that. This is the maturity that is commensurate with someone who's capable of shepherding a congregation. Number two is overseer, and that's where the authority comes from. Somebody's got to make the decision. Someone has to set direction, right? We now, uh, after about five years of my being here, is my best understanding. It's hard to figure this out post-COVID, but, but in terms of active, engaged people. We are shepherding somewhere around 900 souls here right now. You realize we can't go 900 different directions, right? That there are times when we can't be 900 people. We have to be one body. Someone has to have the authority to decide where that one body is going to go. But but why is that maturity required and why is that authority given? Well, that comes in the only imperative command in this text. Shepherd the flock of God. Take care to shepherd the flock. Let me give you some characteristics of a leader with this kind of disposition. Number one, that leader, pastor, deacon, at any level here at Covenant, he or she puts others before himself or herself. Because that's what Jesus did. That's what Paul commanded in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Count others as more significant than yourselves. Number two, he or she loves the local church. Too many people say they're called to ministry. But when you ask about their both their understanding of and appreciation for the church, it has less to do with wanting to see you succeed and more a, 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 ten, a sense of using you as something they're going to step on in order to get to something better. Unqualified. Qualified leaders love the local church. Number three, they say and do everything for your good. Paul, as he leaves Ephesus after having spent three years there, gives his own testimony. He says, I preached to you the whole counsel of God. I've worked hard in your midst. I've proven by my work and life example that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Number four, he or she quickly repents of wrong. And yes, it's going to happen because they're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Just ask the staff. But when you're wrong, you say you're wrong. You own up to that. You Can't expect perfection. You should expect humility. You should expect repentance. Number five, he or she has one master. You're working for an audience of one when you're in this business. Am I pleasing Jesus? Because if I'm pleasing Jesus, I am by default serving his people well. Because that's what he wants. That's what he wants. Now, our temptation today is let's look at charisma, let's look at personality, let's look at engage, you know, can they hold me? Can they, can they, those things are not bad things, but, but let me tell you what is bad. It's very, very harmful and sick and twisted to look at those characteristics alone and conclude exclusively on that basis that person is anointed. We've made that mistake here before. Jesus had strong words for abusive leaders who preyed on and benefited from those they were called to serve. And what he's teaching here is that anointing can be best observed in a person's motivation. Servant leaders characterized by humility. And when the church doesn't use what Jesus teaches us here, ravenous, abusive wolves will come in and they will devour the flock. And then there's a long-term consequence as well. Gifted, genuine, godly, qualified leadership, you know what happens to them? They're ignored. They're passed over. I, in fact, I wonder right now, I'm just going to put, guys, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I wonder how many men are listening to me right now, and you felt a call to pastoral ministry. Maybe, it, maybe it's a non-staff elder role to just help us shepherd the flock of God alongside or maybe it's, hey, maybe it's time for a second career for some of you. Maybe it's time to go off somewhere and prepare for this. Maybe it's time for the church to invest in you in a way that maybe we're sending you out somewhere. Joel's not far from his 50th birthday. Maybe maybe there's some young men in their 20s or early 30s around here that, that inside the next two decades, you're going to be standing where I'm standing because I'm not standing here anymore. But you think to yourself, I don't know if I could ever do that. I don't know if I'm qualified to do that. I don't, I don't think I could preach like Joel. You've never heard the very first sermon I've ever preached. It was awful. It was awful. I can't be up under those like, I can't be, listen, you, I'm not educated enough. I don't know if I have the capacity to lead. I, any shortcomings in areas like that, we can fix that. We can fix that. We have Bible colleges out the wazoo, people. We can fix a lack of preparation. What we cannot fix, is that famous theologian Ron White used to say, you can't fix stupid? Yeah. You know what else you can't fix? Bad character. Only God can do that. But if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first seven verses, and along with that compelling call to serve the local church, you see your reflection in there? Dude, we need you. We need you. Maybe there's some men or women listening to me right now, and you felt the call to ministry, maybe even that call to be a deacon, but you think, man, there's no way I could do that. I couldn't do what Ellen just did. 1 Timothy 3, start with verse 8, go to verse 13. You know what God's looking for? Not men and women of charisma, of high-level education, of, of a certain level of giftedness. All that stuff can be fixed. God is looking for men and women of character, integrity, holiness, transparency. You know how to prevent abusive leadership in an abusive environment? You put men and women like that in leadership. That's how it happens. And they will strengthen God's church. Let me give you one last word here before I close. To anybody who's listening in the room, and whether it happened here or maybe at some other church, if you're watching online, who knows where you're watching from, and you've been the victim of abuse at the hands of a spiritual leader, I'm very sorry, as I can be, that you've experienced that. body of Christ is broken, and sometimes our brokenness comes out in really horrible ways, and if you were the victim of that, Somebody just simply needs to acknowledge the wrong. It might as well be me. Number two, if, if it happened here, we're here for you, and we want to hear your story. I was talking with one of our people just Friday evening who said, you know, there's, there's some of this. I was talking about what I was going to talk about this morning. There's some of this that, that's in the 35-year history of this church that, that has happened here, the spiritual side of it. We want to hear your story. We want to know hey, are there still some cracks and crevices? You can help us to build a safer environment here. If the activity was criminal, come to us because we want justice for you. And we will work with you to find it. But the third thing I want to tell you is this. God's church doesn't just want justice. We want healing. We want your heart healed. We want you. Jesus sometimes people think, okay, the answer to abuse, the answer to all this fallenness in the church is, is we got all this accountability, right? So more accountability, right? And, I, and I'm not saying that's not necessary. We do that with staff, we do that, but, but it's like if, if you've got somebody broken, if you've got somebody, another form to fill out doesn't fix that, okay? There can be a structure that can help push them in the right direction if they're truly repentant, but you don't burden everybody in the organization with all kinds of bureaucracy thinking that that's going to solve the problem. You know know who thinks like that? Washington, D.C. Right? And look, our founders, I think they were geniuses. I really do because they understood to some extent that the men and women who will lead this country for as long as it lasts are fallen in sin and sometimes they're going to be crooked and sometimes they're going to give you money under the table and all these kinds of things. So at the very least what we need is three separate and co-equal branches of government that, and this is key, don't trust each other, right? Distrust is what makes Washington work, That's not within a 1,000 miles of what Jesus wants for his church. Jesus doesn't just want justice. Jesus doesn't just want accountability. Jesus wants healing. And you'll know that healing is there when the trust is returned. When the trust is returned. Jesus wants to restore the trust relationship between leaders and people. And over the next few weeks, I think you're going to learn this. Jesus wants to restore that relationship that you have that's been broken. Jesus wants that abusive situation you're in escaped. He wants you to escape from that. Jesus wants the family of God and the parts of it that may be divided from each other, reunited. But it all starts with leaders. It all starts with leaders. Will you let Jesus this morning begin the process of healing the hurt? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that you speak directly and bluntly about hard things. And here in Matthew 23, Father, we see wisdom from 2,000 years ago that can just slide right into very easy application. It's easy to understand. It's hard to do. So, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom as a church body. Father, if there have been victims of abuse of any kind, Lord, I pray they'd be received. I pray they'd be believed. I pray they'd be defended. I pray for justice to prevail. I pray for reconciliation. I pray for healing. Father, as we move forward as a church family, and this 30 days of fasting and prayer that's coming up, Lord, Father, the environment that exists here can only be perpetuated by the power of your Spirit. And so, Father, will you endow us with that power, that strength, that discernment to always do the right thing. And Lord, may your people may your people be encouraged and equipped and empowered and lord may they be faithful to you and may we be able to present them as a crown laid at your feet one day i ask this in jesus name amen hi everybody pastor joel here and i am so glad you stopped by I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.